Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reform Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders for the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president and professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington, and I'm joined by Dr. Tommy Keene, our academic dean and professor of New Testament, Dr. Paul Jean, professor of New Testament and senior pastor here at New City Presbyterian Church in the D.C. area, and Dr. Grace Sutanto, Professor of Systematic Theology. And today we have a special guest. We're taking a bit of a break from our Apostles' Creed series, and we're going to sit down and talk with Dr. Joshua Ralston. So before we do that, Gray, can you go ahead and introduce our guest, and uh, we can get going. Yeah, thanks so much, Scott. Well, it's really great to have Dr. Joshua Ralston here. I've come to know him quite a bit when I was spending my time at Edinburgh University. And he just came on, I think, the second year that I was there. And he actually ended up becoming my internal examiner as well for uh, my PhD thesis there. Uh, before starting out at Edinburgh, though, um, Dr. Joshua Ralston, he actually began at, uh, he did his PhD at Emory University on Christian-Muslim relations, particularly Christian theological engagements with Sharia. And then after that, he was a professor at Union Presbyterian Seminary in Richmond, Virginia. And then now he is a lecturer or reader actually in Christian Muslim relations there at the University of Edinburgh. So it's really great to have you here, Joshua, welcome. Thanks so much uh, to Scott and to Gray and to all of you for inviting me on. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah, so I think a lot of people are probably wondering how did you as now a Christian theologian get into what you're studying and how did you end up becoming a Christian scholar of Islam particularly? Yeah, it's a long, winding personal story, but I'll give you a few of the highlights. Uh, I had done an undergraduate degree in philosophy and worked at a church for a few years in university ministry before deciding that uh, my gifts and call were better suited to uh, theology and maybe guest preaching and teaching rather than being a full-time pastor. And so I was doing a PhD at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. And during that same time, uh, I was also involved in refugee resettlement and ultimately involved with a, a couple friends of mine who were in seminary to start a new church uh, with people that had recently been resettled in the States. Um, so I'm taking courses uh, during the day on things like hermeneutics and history in the philosophy department or Thomas Aquinas or Schleiermacher. And then I'm engaged uh, in the afternoon or evenings with uh, people who have been resettled. And a number of those were Muslims. This is in the mid-aughts, so people from Iraq, from Afghanistan, from Somalia. And I became particularly close with three guys who were from northern Sudan. And we would, I'd have them over for Easter meals. They'd have me over for iftars, which is the breaking of the Ramadan fast. And they'd start asking me questions about God, about Jesus, about scripture, you know, how can you worship one God and say that God is Father, Son, and Spirit? If God is merciful, why does God need his son to die for sins? These kind of questions. And it was fascinating because I knew how to answer those in the history of theology. But to answer them in another idiom with a Muslim raised a lot of new questions for me. You couldn't just rely on the standard answers. Well, Calvin says this, Luther says that, Paul says this, here's this theory of atonement. You had to begin again at the beginning in some ways. And so uh, in the U.S., uh, you have to take coursework. And I thought, you know, there's plenty of guys doing philosophy. What if I did my coursework in Islamic studies on the side of Christian theology and started taking more and more classes 
in Islamic studies. Um, my wife uh, works or worked for Care International, which is a large international NGO, and we got placed in Egypt while I was teaching at the Presbyterian Seminary there for a semester. And then we ended up living uh, in the Holy Land in Ramallah for two years. So that experience of then living in Muslim majority contexts even further solidified that interest. What were some of the striking things that you picked out when you were living in those Muslim majority contexts? I mean, I think when I get people to visit here in Jakarta, Indonesia, probably the first thing they'll pick out is the Muslim calls to prayer in the morning and the evening. It's very loud, very prominent. But you were in a more serious context there. What did you pick out? Yeah, I mean, in Egypt, you have to remember 5 to 10% of the population are Christians, Coptic mostly, but the second largest group are, are actually reformed from American missionaries. So I was teaching a course on systematic theology and Christian Muslim relations to the Synod of the Nile, so Presbyterians in Egypt, Egyptian Christians. Um, so that was a really interesting experience to be both studying and working on my own PhD, but also teaching in the context of, of Christians in Egypt. Um, as you said, one of the things that becomes clearly ubiquitous is sort of the rhythm and order of Islamic life, the call to prayer, the ritual activity, the way it sort of shapes and forms life in, in really interesting ways. You also see living in, in the West Bank, obviously now you're talking about Jews, Muslims, Christians, and the complexity of that. Some of the ways in which uh, Islamic life is much more complicated than just a textbook can say. There's a variety of positions and variety of belief systems of practices. And I try to, when I teach and when I write, to be really clear about just as Christianity has a diverse number of positions, opinions, theology, so too does the Islamic tradition or the Jewish tradition, and to engage in a more nuanced and diverse way about that. But I think the other thing was, I just found myself regularly addressed by Muslims. I was asked questions by Muslims about my belief system, about my prayer life, about why do I eat pork, um, these sorts of regular kind of questions. And even the Quran itself addresses Christians. And I found it was important for me as a theologian to take those questions seriously and to respond to them. I don't think every pastor or theologian is called to do that. But for me, it's important just as maybe Kant or Heidegger, analytic philosophy may address us as Christians, so too do Muslims. And I've taken it as my vocation to try to respond to some of those questions as best I can. Yeah, that's so true. I think growing up in Jakarta, Indonesia, I had one picture of Muslims in my own mind and one picture of Islam. And then when I went to the States and what Western media would tell me about Islam was very different than the picture of Islam that I grew up with and the Muslims that I knew. And then when I started reading about Islam in an academic context, I started realizing as well that the, the textual versions of Islam that I was getting was also very different than the lived Islam that I've lived and been around in Jakarta and the conversations that I had with them. So it's really important, I think, as you said, for Christians to think about Christian Muslim relations and how to dialogue well uh, with Muslims here and, and just thinking about Islam theologically. So we, we just started, I mean, Edinburgh, sorry, just started the um, Christian Muslim relations master's program there last year. So tell us a little bit about that and the impetus behind that. I'm, I've heard and seen you write a lot about Francis Clooney's discussion in Harvard about comparative religion being faith-seeking understanding across religious boundaries. So tell us about what is Christian Muslim relations. Tell us about that master's program. 
Yeah, thanks, uh, Gray. So at Edinburgh, we've started over the last five or six years a Christian Muslim Studies Network, which tries to get Christian theologians, as well as other Christian scholars, biblical scholars, historians, uh, sociologists, as well as Muslim intellectuals engaged in a series of conversations. We've had conferences on things like divine attributes, on political theology, uh, on religion, violence, and peace, um, and bring these thinkers together. But we've also begun a PhD program and most recently a one-year master's degree. So it's 12 months. Uh, you take six courses and then spend a summer writing a lengthy thesis uh, to study a very various themes that you might be interested in. Uh, we have a particular interest in both the lived religion side with some of my colleagues, but with me, my colleague Mona Siddiqui, we have a strong interest in sort of the theological, legal, and ethical dialogue between Christians and Muslims in a way to engage uh, in ways that take seriously different. So I think one of the things that's really important for us is that Christian-Muslim dialogue or Christian-Muslim engagement isn't about finding some third space beyond the differences between Christianity and Islam, but to take those really seriously. What does it mean for me as a Christian to offer an account of the death of Jesus in light of their critiques? What does it mean for a Muslim to make sense of their own claims about the Quran as, as the final revelation of God and, and to really engage seriously with those differences? And that's a priority for us. I think your book is such a wonderful example of this. It's called Law and the Rule of God. And it's just published recently with Cambridge University Press, Christian Engagement with Sharia. And I think when Christians hear about Sharia or Westerners, or maybe just anyone who's been influenced or shaped by Western media in some way, they hear Sharia and they're quite alarmed by that. And it really has become a flashpoint of controversy when we think about Islam and especially Christian engagement with Islam. So maybe before getting into the contents of your book, which we'd love to talk about, maybe tell us a little bit about the misconceptions that you normally hear about Sharia and what is this understanding of Sharia, which just means law, right? Yeah, the word Sharia, actually means more than just law. Uh, the root for the word in Arabic is a word for the way or the path towards God or the watering hole is sometimes used. Uh, and so it covers everything from prayer to politics. When you pray, what you eat, how you get married or get divorced, sexual ethics, finances, interest rates, now, the term Sharia in the West especially, but also I think more broadly in the last 60 years has primarily become identified with state-enforced political laws and more specifically with forms of criminal punishment related to corporal rule. This is in part because of the rise of groups like Daesh or ISIS who argue that they're invoking the rule of God through their law. Uh, and so they're going to force women to veil themselves, enact uh, the death penalty for adultery, things like this. Um, in the vast history of the Islamic tradition, there's been a wide range of opinions about this. Um, and in fact, there's a, a variety of ways that the Islamic tradition has sought to provide conditions in which these criminal punishments can be uh, carried out. So for instance, with theft, there's about 60 some odd conditions that have to be met in order for the amputation to be carried out. You can't have mistaken what you've stolen for something that is your own. You couldn't have needed it to survive. It couldn't have been placed in the wrong place. You can't be drunk, which is kind of weird. Uh, and so there's all these conditions that have to be met in order for it to be carried out. Um, so I think that the Sharia, when a Muslim hears it, they may be just thinking about 
How do I pray? What can I eat? How do I get divorced or married properly according to God? While for many non-Muslims, what we think of is something like um, the Iranian model or the Saudi model. But over the history of Islam, there's been a wide variety of perspectives. One of the things that I also point out in the book is that the term Sharia is not a term that is exclusive to Muslims until about the 19th century. So if you look at medieval debates between Arabic-speaking Christians, Arabic-speaking Jews, and Arabic-speaking Muslims, they freely use the word Sharia for all of their positions. So there's something called Shariat al-Masahi, the Sharia of the Messiah, or the or the or Shariat al-Injil, the Sharia of the Gospels. And in fact, many Arabic Bibles are translated where Paul talks about, you know, nomos of Christ would translate it as Sharia. So one of the things that the book tries to do is not avoid these hard questions, but to put in a broader history of development so that we can have a, a, a more helpful and rich conversation that doesn't avoid problems or challenges, but also doesn't narrow down the entire of the Islamic tradition to sort of state-enforced criminal punishment. Joshua, I, I haven't spent some time in uh, the Persian Gulf region uh, back in college. So this is kind of pre-9-11 where there was a lot more freedom to kind of move around there as well as a Westerner. You know, that was one of the things that struck me, it's just going back to a comment you said earlier, is that how how frequently I found myself having conversations about my Christian faith and going over there, I had this misconception that, well, I better be careful what I say in terms of outing myself as a Christian because of this perception that I had from the West and being surprised how often the conversation of religion came up. As a matter of fact, I ended up talking about Christianity much more in Bahrain than I did in the United States. I found kind of casually with taxi drivers and, folks down at the souk and, and, and everything that was going on, you know, it, was, it was fascinating to me because it was one of those misconceptions that you know, I was happy to find was not the case. Um, it raises that question as you're talking about Sharia. I, I learned that, as we've already said, there's all of these different manifestations of what Islam looks like, how, how it's practically applied around the world. And as you're talking about something like Sharia, where there's many different interpretations as to what that means and how it's to be applied, how have you found, is there kind of useful ways that you found to introduce this with Westerners to kind of broach this topic? Is there a, is there a mainstream notion of Sharia that you can draw from, you know, the variety of, uh, you know, the variety of applications that we find out there? Is there, are there? Are there a few things that we can kind of say, this is what is kind of held most generally across, you know, the Islamic world? Yeah, it's a complicated question in many ways, but one of the things that I try to do when I'm introducing students or if I'm speaking at churches is to distinguish between Sharia, which is thought of as sort of God's will for the world, and what Islam calls fiqh, which is sort of the human attempt to understand this. Mm -hmm. And there's an entire sort of legal jurisprudential tradition uh, a lot like Christian systematic theology to develop how do we make sense let's pretend I'm a Muslim, of God's will in light of a current situation. And they want to root it primarily in divine revelation, in this case, the Quran, and the life and example of the Prophet Muhammad and his companions. But those don't speak to every situation. And so there's a various schools of law that develop using analogy, using consensus, using the common good to try to address a new situation. And historically, these weren't necessarily top-down enforced rules by an empire, but more like going to your local 
pastor or rabbi or wise person to get counsel on a situation, right? So a fatwa, for instance, is just a decision about a question. Can my son marry this woman? Uh, what do I do about getting a loan if I need to buy my house, right? And we tend to think of it, I think, in much more of this dramatic sense, but it's much more the mundane reality of trying to discern God's will in a situation. So for those of you that might know Jewish studies, it's much closer to that, like halakha and rabbis, than it is to state law. Now, in the 20th and 21st century, you have some really major transformations with the Islamic world after the fall of the Ottoman Empire, where it gets focused much more on state law. And that's where I think some of the challenges come. And you have different varieties. You have the, the state enforces the Sharia, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Sudan being examples. You have other examples, and this is the same as the nation state of Israel, where they say the Sharia is the moral source of the law, but it's not the enacted law. Well, what does that mean, right? Uh, you have a whole bunch of debates about that. So places like Egypt have that model. And then you have others that have something more of a, we recognize the, the Muslim majority of our country, and we have personal laws that are marked by our Islamic tradition, marriage and divorce specifically, but the laws more generally are secular. Theoretically, uh, Indonesia, although there's some challenges to that, Tunisia and Turkey are examples, again, challenges to that. But one of the things um, that I try to talk about in the book is the way that Sharia has been this force in 20th century Islam as an alternative to what they think of as the problems of modernity, the problems of a loss of power, and it, it has more of a moral vision, I, utopian vision in the 20th century and 21st century than it did classically. Is there a pushback against this kind of like notion of secularism in some of these countries? Turkey would be an example that comes to mind, this kind of self-consciously thinking about secularism. I know that's not, that's not the same as what we talk about, at least in the United States, like in terms of a separation between church and state and that kind of thing. But is there a pushback against that secularism that perhaps Sharia has been seen as or seen as, an, as, as a way in which to push back against that, against maybe sort of an encroaching modernism of some kind? Yeah, that segues really well uh, into to talking about my book. In the third chapter of the book, I try to look at some of these, these debates, what's called anti-secularist discourse amongst many different Muslims. And it's not just one version of Sharia, but there's this general sense that secularism has been enforced by the top down. So there's a famous quote by Rashid Ghanoushi, who's a Tunisian, still alive and was involved in the revolution, who said, secularism came on the back of a tank and it hasn't left since. So the ways in which secularism is equated with certain dictators. So people like Saddam Hussein, who initially were a secularist party. So there's that sort of critique of it. There's also a sense that it, 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 the way it got translated into Arabic and Turkish, as well as Persian, implied secularism as atheism, not just church, state, or mosque-state separation. So there's been an interest amongst a number of Muslims to talk about not secularism, but civil, a civil state rather than a secular state as a way to make these distinctions. And what's interesting, and uh, I try to check chart this, is there's also a critique about Western Christianity built into this, that Western Christianity's failure to offer a coherent alternative to choose whatever 20th century problem you want, modernity, capitalism, communism, secularism, 
is because Christianity lacks a coherent vision of the world and that Islam with the Sharia uh, can respond to these. And in the third uh, chapter of the book, I try to chart these different perspectives on, on this history. Yeah, one of those particularly powerful examples that you uh, talk about is Ibn Taymiyyah, which is a 13th, 14th century Islamic scholar critiquing particular forms of two kingdom theology. And that really struck me because I think two kingdom theology even today is kind of hotly debated in a particular Christian context. So could you tell us a bit more about that particular critique? Yeah, so Ibn Tamiya, for people who um, are listening, is a scholar from Damascus who dies in the year 1328. And he was a prolific and controversial writer in his period, um, criticizing what he thought of as certain innovations within the Islamic tradition, calling for a renewed account of politics, one that's guided by the moral sources of the law. Um, he's quite critical of what he sees of as innovations, you know, praying to saints, these sorts of things. I mean, some people have even said he has a Protestant-like reformist attitude. Um, he's also considered by some a sort of modern, uh, I mean, a pre-modern version of Salafis. So the more conservative Muslims who try to go back to the earliest period. It's a little more complicated than that. But he wrote what is probably the longest ever critique of Christianity by a major Muslim thinker. It, it's a book called Al Jawab as Sahih, uh, and it's only it's only been partially translated into English as a Muslim theologian's response to Christianity. It's over a thousand pages long, and uh, long story short, there was a Christian writer named Paul of Antioch who wrote one of these like circular letters. It's one of these like apologetic genres where he says, I went around the Mediterranean to see what the true religion is. And it turns out it's Christianity. And it's sort of a critique of Islam in Arabic. This letter gets circulated to, to Cairo, to Damascus, and then redacted by some later Christians. And it receives actually three responses from the preeminent Muslim thinkers of the day. And Ibn Tamiyas is one of them. And part of this is that Paul of Antioch had said, you know, there's two laws. There's a Shriyat al-Adl, which is the Sharia of, of justice. And there's a Sharia al-Fadl, which is the Sharia of grace. You guys are Christian theologians, biblical scholars, you know where this is going. God gives the law of Moses, the law of justice to reveal God's just character. Then, law, then God gives the law of grace through Jesus, which reveals the fullness of God's mercy. And once you have the law of generosity, and which is given through Jesus, you don't need anything new. This is the Christian argument. And Ibn Tamiyyah responds to this and says, yes, God did give us a law of justice through Moses, and God did give us a law of mercy through Jesus. Because you have to remember in the Islamic tradition, the Quran says that both the Torah and the gospel are handed down by God, are given by God, right? So uh, he affirms both of these, but he says, the problem is that the Christians so focus on mercy that they create a dualism in their politics and in their life, such that the law of justice gets abrogated. It's not followed. And what ends up happening, according to Ibn Tamiyyah, is that the kings make their own rules. They can follow the rules uh, on their own whims based on Romans 13. And this creates sort of an arbitrariness in uh, Christian politics. By contrast, he says that the law of Jesus is then evoked on those who are oppressed, on the poor. They go seeking their rights, 
and they're turned away saying, turn the other cheek. So essentially the Sermon on the Mount, he says, is used by Christian rulers to keep the poor and the oppressed in their place. And what he says is a double injustice has been done. First, you've had your uh, injustices given out against you, and then you go to seek them and you're told that Jesus wants you to turn the other cheek. And so he essentially, I talk about it as sort of a, a pre-Luther critique of hardcore Lutheranism, right? Where the two kingdoms model ends up separating God's justice from God's mercy. And of course, he argues as a Muslim that the Sharia combines justice and mercy so that you are given the option. Think here of sort of Thomas Aquinas's idea that you, you have the option to turn the other cheek, but you're not required to. It's something that you can do beyond but justice is always maintained. So mercy is implored, but justice is maintained. And that he worries that the Christian account ends up so dividing the two and so elevating the ruler that the poor are oppressed and that the ruler continues to act. And so this is in short, his argument. Again, this is 1328 when he dies. I try to then check, look at how some more contemporary Muslims have redeveloped this in new context. But the, the book usually kind of uses this as a jumping off point and saying, he may be wrong about some particulars, but I think he's right in spirit. Why have we as Christians come to this point? And what might be an alternative way of thinking about law that is still faithful to our claims about Jesus, um, but makes sense of this critique? That's fascinating. If so 14th century, what is, who's he interacting with? Yeah, so, so he's... We assume, uh, because he's in Damascus, that this is, right. he, he, up to this point, most of the Arabic-speaking theologians are responding to Syriac or uh, Chalcedonian Arabic-speaking Christians. Because um, if you remember, there's a large Christian community under Islam for the first hundred years. Islam is the empire, but the majority of people are still Christian. Mm -hmm. And they're both Chalcedonian, so what are called Melkite and non-Chalcedonians, so those that are excommunicated either as Nestorians or as Monophysites, and those groups are all there. So he does talk about these three, three different groups, and in the section on Christology, he very clearly knows their different Christological accounts, and I mean, he, has a, he thinks the Nestorians have the best, the most coherent of the three, but he thinks they're all wrong nonetheless. But we also think that because this is shortly after some of the more crusades, that he had more of an engagement with some Latin Christians, not just Eastern Christians. But it's not like he's got texts. So what's uh, like Western texts? He's got Arabic speaking texts that he's engaging with. And, and you have to remember, there's actually a lively series of Arabic Christian theologians writing from about the 8th century to the 14th century. And he's mostly engaging with them. It's not like he knows Thomas Aquinas uh, or... Anselm or, or even, he does know John of Damascus, um, but not others. Yeah, probably knows John of Damascus for pretty obvious reasons there, uh, as he was one of the earlier Christian scholars that actually critiqued Islam as a Christian heresy. So what do you think should be a proper Christian response to this particular charge that Christian law is dualistic, schizophrenic even perhaps? Um, and you're gesturing towards something like a response there towards the, the latter half of your book, right? You appeal to the resurrection, particularly in the book of Acts. So tell us a bit more about that. Yeah. Um, in chapter four and five, I try to offer a little bit of a close Christian reading about how historically certain Western Christians have made distinctions in terms of the Mosaic law or the Old Testament. 
looking at Justin Martyr, Thomas Aquinas, and Martin Luther specifically. And you can see a whole bunch of distinctions that begin to develop, not only between the old and the new law, but also between moral, ceremonial, and uh, civil laws in, in Thomas. And one of the things that I try to diagnose is that there's this strange uh, habit that develops, what I call is um, quarantining the natural law from the gaze of the gospel. Uh, and so what you see happening amongst many of these theologians is that they rethink the Hebrew Bible or what we would call the Old Testament in light of the event of Jesus Christ, right? So Jesus Christ becomes the norm, which you then need to reinterpret the Old Testament. But they don't do that same thing to natural law or civil law. You can see this particularly in how they appropriate what Michael Cook calls pagan law. There's, there's a willingness to appropriate whether it's Germanic or Roman laws in really easy ways. And what I'm trying to suggest is maybe, I'm not trying to get rid of the notion of creation. I don't prefer language of natural law, but I do think there is something like knowledge of God through creation. I'm not a total Bardian, despite what Gray thinks. But that that always needs to be reevaluated in light of the fundamental interruption of God for us in Jesus Christ. And that there hasn't been the same willingness to reevaluate natural law and civil law as there has Mosaic law. And so I try to think about what that might look like. And as you say, I, I offer a kind of a reading of Acts, the Peter's Acts, Peter's sermons in the start of Acts as, as a divine reversal of public law's judgments against Jesus and think about what this might mean for contemporary law. And more specifically, I think I strongly emphasize the Muslim priority of particularity over general appeals to law. One of the things that I noticed and you see, especially amongst theologians, is we tend to talk about the law in the abstract, you know, the law as such. But if you actually look at, at the biblical witness, whether that's Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, even the prophets, the law is a concrete reality, right? They're talking about this law, this case. And that's really what FIC is about. It's about making a decision about this particular case. And so one of the things I try to gesture towards is how can we think about uh, making judgments in light of our claims about Jesus on particular laws rather than talking about the law as such. I mean, I can get into that in a little bit more detail, but that's part of what my trajectory is, is moving towards. And as Gray knows, I think I'm not a neo-Calvinist, but I'm sympathetic with some of the ways that neo-Calvinism tries to do something similar and to, to interpret all of life in light of the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. I really appreciated that. You know, I think when you talked about that siphoning off of natural law from the gospel, I'm very sympathetic to that critique. And I definitely see, like you said, you know, lots of resonances with the neo-Calvinist tradition of Bavink and Abraham Kuyper. So, you know, especially when you think about the neo-Calvinist tradition, they've always said that there is such a thing as natural law. There is such a thing as knowledge of God from nature and conscience, knowledge of moral law and so on, just from, from being made in God's image. We've always, however, recognized that access to natural law is always epistemologically complicated. It's always mediated through culture and tradition. It's always mediated through uh, context, in other words. And so there is no naked access. And what we found is that when people just talk about natural law as an independent moral or epistemological norm, they've actually started not really to talk about natural law per se, but rather Aristotelianism, 
or really about their own particular context and their own particular intuitions, which is really different from moral law in that absolute sense. And it's really hard to get there. So, but you've also mentioned some of these differences about how the neo-Calvinists and your own approach have deferred. What would be those primary differences in your own mind? And how would you therefore critique the neo-Calvinist tradition from your own perspective? That's probably too, I mean, you know, neo-Calvinism better than me. Um, I think there's a number of points where uh, both in terms of neo-Calvinism and in terms of Bart, who I used briefly, there's a tendency towards a little bit of a Christian triumphalism where Christianity, the religion has the resources to form its own community and sense of knowledge. And I do think that, of course, the church is called to be salt and light, um, to be a city on a hill, et cetera. But I also think that we're enmeshed in our own culture in ways that mean that our knowing depends in much more serious ways on the challenge and questions asked for us from the outside. And so here I draw a little bit on Wolfhard Pannenberg's notion of eschatological truth uh, and the notion that, yes, everything is reevaluated in light of the event of Jesus, but that doesn't mean everything we knew before goes out the door. So the notion of a Christian worldview, for instance, for me is a little bit too circumscribed. I don't think there is a Christian worldview. I know it's more complicated than this, but I tend not to like to operate in those kinds of discourses. And I also have a little bit probably more appreciation of, of political secularism than some neo-Calvinists do. And so in the, the final chapter of the book, I talk about um, how the law can serve as an indirect and provisional witness uh, to the divine rule and the ways in which affirming like that, and neo-Calvinists can affirm this too, any, any reformed person can, right? That all truth is God's truth and that justice done against the church can nonetheless be a witness to God's justice. Um, and so I think there's certain points there that we would disagree with. And I, I think there's a strong sense for me about the importance of being open to being surprised and critiqued from those outside of us. Not that neo-Calvinism doesn't have this. It's not a big difference. I think some of it's just what community are you coming from? What are the resources that you're using? In another essay that I, that I wrote that I know you've read, I look at different Reformed theologians' response to Islam, Turretin, Schleiermacher, and Bavink. And as you know, I think Turretin and Bavink actually do better than Schleiermacher on engaging with Islam. So I'm not averse to neo-Calvinism. It's just that some of the resources that they draw on are not my own. That's really helpful. I'm wondering if you could kind of go back, take all that and go back to one of the starting points of the conversation, which is how you got into, into your field and, and just discussing these things with with friends and people around you so so much of like christian apologetics particularly in some of our traditions is about or takes the tone of this is why you're wrong and and here's the right thing can you give us just practically constructive more constructive approaches to dialoguing about these things with neighbors and friends and and colleagues yeah i this is a little bit of my 20-something Bardianism coming out, which is I'm very skeptical of apologetics. And I want to distinguish between apologetics and giving an account or bearing witness. And I'm currently working on a book on witness and the divine word as a model for Christian Muslim dialogue. 
And if you look, for instance, in Calvin's Institutes, he does give reasons for the veracity and truthfulness of scripture in the first book, right? But what is the actual final movement that compels someone to see through scripture? Well, it's the giving of the Holy Spirit, right? So accounts and arguments are important, but the uh, recognition that the agent of conversion is not myself, but the Holy Spirit bearing witness to the salvific presence of Jesus Christ. And so for me, anytime I'm engaged in a dialogue in giving an account of why Christians believe what we do, I can enter into it open-handedly because God is the agent of, of anyone's conversion or seeing the lights, not me. Now I want to give the best possible account that I can. I want to think seriously and respond but I, for me, I'm entering into that conversation in a sense that grace has already preceded me and that grace will go after me. I mean, think here of the parable of the sowers, right? It's not our job to grow the seeds. It's our job to throw them. Now, if it's a dialogue that's like, let's all just agree, like kumbaya stuff, yeah. But if we're talking about a seriously intellectual or even a friendship that says, here's why I believe what I believe about the Quran or Muhammad. I'm not entering into that anxiously because I, my own faith doesn't depend, my own salvation doesn't depend on my argument, right? This is, this is, I think, the great insight of Luther in freedom of a Christian. Once you realize that your justification is given by grace in Christ, you're freed up to love your neighbor. You're freed up, right? And your, your neighbor's salvation isn't your work and your salvation doesn't depend on your work. So in my sense, like to be friendly, to answer questions, uh, to have a serious conversation. It's not apologetics, but it's also not, not apologetics, right? But I think there's a tendency to think of apologetics as a battle. And I, I, I want to strongly emphasize, and, and Scott talked about this, I have had far more conversations about the Trinity, about the incarnation and the crucifixion. These are the ones that always come back when I lived in Ramallah with Palestinians and when I lived in Egypt with Egyptians than I ever had living in like an evangelical subworld in Southern California or certainly living in Scotland, right? It's a natural conversation. Now, that isn't to say that there aren't issues in Muslim majority worlds about blasphemy and the freedom to preach. There are. But the sort of everyday conversations I think of as an opportunity to, to give an account, to bear witness. And I want to distinguish that. I mean, if that's what you mean by apologetics, then I'm certainly on board. But if apologetics is me winning the argument, that's where I, I don't need to win the argument for God's grace to be present. Yeah, that, that was certainly the context of the question is apologetics so often tends to ha have that, especially in, in our context, a winning the argument approach, a silver bullet. Here, here's how you, here's how you defeat these ideas kind of thing. And I love what you said because, and I wonder if your work on Acts kind of factors into this because the giving of testimony is much closer to the model that we see, argumentative, propositional, but testimony, witness, those are the words that scripture uses to talk about these things. And particularly in, in, in Acts, you see that with Peter's speeches, with Paul's speeches. Yeah, I mean, that's my, my current book project is to leverage what witness and testimony as a better way to think about Christian Muslim engagement for these very reasons. You know, 
obviously John the Baptist and us are slightly different, but this notion of pointing towards Christ, similar with Peter, go and be my witness to the ends of the earth. And there's also this sense in which in the Islamic tradition is also a central part of the Islamic tradition. To be a Muslim is to say, Ashahaddu, I bear witness that there is no God but God. And there's this strong emphasis on witness. Um, and so one of the things that I think is helpful about this is it allows for dialogue and dialogical debate. Uh, and it doesn't presuppose like, oh, do we believe in the same God or not? Do we believe in the same revelation or not? Like these kind of basic questions. Everyone always asks, do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? Um, as if that's, or are we Abrahamic? As if that solves the question. All that is, is a platform for dialogue. And in fact, I don't think we can answer that question unless we engage in these acts of mutual witness. But for me, one of the things that's interesting, Tommy, about witness is that I also then have to be open to the counter testimony, the counter witness of another tradition, whether that's philosophers, whether that's your neighborhood atheist or Marxist or spiritual, but not religious. And it's for me, I found that the Islamic tradition asks me questions that get to the heart of my faith. If God is all merciful as Islam claims, why does God need Jesus to die to save us? How do I account for this? You know, that gets to the heart of it. So for me, that being involved in, in testimony also means I need to be open to the counter testimony and I need to be open to being changed in light of it. That's great. I remember getting asked to go do a, uh, one of those kind of interfaith conferences at the university of North Florida. This is like 10 years ago. And it was, there was, there was a Muslim voice. Uh, there was a, a Jewish voice. And then I was the Christian voice. And because of just the student body of University of North Florida at the time, uh, the majority of the group, I think the RUF had planned this Reform University Fellowship, but it ended up being majority Muslim students who were there. And the conversation that was had was, was just fascinating. And that was uh, kind of reminded me that here, even in the States, you know, I'd had this memory 20 years before of being in the Gulf region and having that experience. And you know, working with some with uh, Muslim or, or, or converted Muslims who are now Christians in the time since then, but now here being in an, in an American university and having these discussions afterwards that were so much more interesting from my point of view as a Christian than so many so many of my discussions with sort of my secular American neighbor. You know, just the 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 insight. Um, I remember at one point a student came up and was we were talking Trinity and. He, you know, he was kind of arguing against a, a Trinitarian view of God, obviously, and was asking me, where in the Bible do I find uh, arguments to my, you know, to my defense? And as soon as I cited, you know, I think I started with John 1, 1, he says, no, 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 you can't use John. You can't use the gospel of John. Yeah. And I thought even there, like so much insight already that he, he already knew that so much of our Trinitarian theology comes out of the gospel of John. Right. I mean, he had really kind of been thinking through this idea and it was a, it was a friendly and vigorous debate with him and his buddies, you know, after this meeting. And um, yeah, just again, to your point, uh, I, I find those conversations sometimes to be much more fruitful and insightful than a lot of the other conversations that I have here in the American context. Josh, thanks so much for being with us. Um, conversation has been very interesting and instructive. Um, during my graduate program, I had several close uh, Muslim friends. And I was curious to know if you had a similar experience where uh, we would have regular meals together. And at some point, 
we were laughing because we realized that we genuinely cared for one another and we wanted to, if I can use this language, convert each other, you know? And just wondering throughout your experience, um, did you have any encounter or experience where uh, your Muslim friends and colleagues were trying to convert you, if I can use that language or, you know, what was it like for you personally because you were in that realm? Yeah, I mean, there is this sense that in my adult life, or at least in my 30s and now into my 40s, some of my closest friends are Muslims. You know, we share food together. I, if, if they come over, I try to be attentive and aware of what their dietary restrictions are when I'm cooking. Um, and so that's the, a normal part of, of my life. One of my closest colleagues, Mona Siddiqui, always is joking. To, she's a Muslim um, theologian and scholar herself, sort of joking about some of these ideas and when am I going to convert? Um, and so especially in my 20s and some of the, those conversations, there was this sense of what, what, what is it that stops you? Like, you know so much about the Islamic tradition, you've studied Arabic, why isn't it, right? If you can grant that the Trinity does raise a lot of intellectual questions, what is it that keeps you from remaining a Christian? Is it just culture? Are you afraid? And so there is these sorts of conversations that come out out of trust. I mean, I've also had just your regular, I'm at Al-Azhar, which is one of the main Sunni universities and mosques where they're just handing you a track. And that also reflected on me. I grew up in a Southern California world that was really sort of tracked heavy, apologetics heavy. And just the irony that like this, you know, I've, this little track is going to convert me to Islam. Like, come on, not to say God can't work in mysterious ways, but yeah, I've certainly have and continue to have those kind of experiences of close friendship of both the, the close friendship and community, but also aware that there are certain differences, you know, I'm, in terms of how you might be married or buried. Of course, I've attended lots of these events, but there, there still remains some of those distinctions and differences that lead us to, to want deeper relationship. Although oddly, I mean, um, existentially, I felt that more when I've been at Catholic friends, um, church services where I'm not able to take communion, uh, like that existentially hit me more than my Muslim friends, but that's, that's neither here nor there. But when I think about it existentially, that felt like a bigger event than Islam. And that maybe says something about, uh, interior Christian differences as well. But anyway, actually, that's fascinating. I'd, I'd love to unpack that <laughs> a little bit more if you want to, um, I mean, yeah, are, you, are you saying that you're talking about sometimes these internal Christian differences can feel even more disorienting? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I than some others. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, so I know when I'm with my Muslim friends that we're divided by a host of things. I don't believe that Muhammad is the seal of the prophets. They don't believe that Jesus Christ is God present for us to save the world. Right. Those those divide us. And I'm aware of that. And we can work through these differences and maybe experience some of these differences, but there's a sense of comfort knowing that, even if there may be some longing. One of my best friends from childhood uh, converted to Catholicism. And I know, you know, the experience of going to church with him when I'm visiting and hearing these familiar words of institution, even if they're in somewhat different, but then not being invited, the, the fissure of the church's body being broken to me existentially feels more of a testimony of the sort of existential pain of, of distance than 
than with Islam. And I mean, that may just because, and I think this is one of the reasons that Islam and Christianity actually confront each other, is that the closer you are, the more painful the disagreement can be. Yeah. It's actually with Buddhism, or to, to go back to Gray's earlier point, Buddhism or Hinduism, which some of these comparative theologians started with, you have such distance, both historically, but also metaphysically, that there's almost space for play. But when it comes to Judaism, Christianity, Islam, we're claiming that the one God who created the world, who called Abraham, means this versus this, right? And that that's like a break in the family. I'm not saying Islam is an offshoot of Christianity. It's not what I mean. But the fact that we share so much and yet disagree so fundamentally can be more even more vividly painful. You could say similar things about divisions within the Christian community, obviously, and the reality of that. So yeah. I do think one, one of the things that you're aware of when you're engaged with Christian Muslim dialogue is the ways in which it makes you reflect again on your own Christian theology, return to those sources and reevaluate them in new ways. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Sometimes it feels like, it feels to me almost like, you know, the fact that, that an interfamily battle is much more emotionally fraught, right, than, than, a, than a debate with, with the stranger, okay? And that, that, that finds a variety of ways in which it, it kind of shows up existentially in your experience of these things. That's really interesting. I know I, you said that, and I, and I know exactly what you mean when you said it, and it struck me I wanted to hear more about it. Joshua, this has been a really, really helpful conversation. So if anybody's listening to this and they'd love to get into Christian-Muslim relations as an academic discipline, what would you recommend them to do? Are there any books that you would recommend, things that you would look for online, perhaps, that you would point them to? Yeah, there's been a number of recent books that might help you out. Um, one of the things that might be interesting for the listeners is to read a couple Muslim perspectives on Christianity, and they're, they're ironic, so they're less apologetic. Two that I can recommend. One is my own colleague Mona Siddiqui's book called Christians, Muslims, and Jesus, so it explores some of the disagreements between Christians and Muslims over Jesus. Another is a series of essays by Mahmoud Ayyub. He's a Lebanese Shia, and it's called Muslim Views of Christianity. So he looks at things like Jesus is the son of God, uh, the crucifixion, and how as a Muslim he views these. I think, although I'm not sure that he converted to evangelical Christianity for a while and then converted back to Shiism. So that's those are some interesting books that may actually get you to think about how do Muslims themselves think about Christianity in a non-threatening way, right? They, they recognize the differences, but they're trying to engage in a way that I think Christians can, can listen. Um, Edinburgh University Press has a new book by Hugh Goddard called A History of Christian Muslim Relations, which would give you kind of a, a broad history overview of that. And I know there is a, a new book by Martin Akkad, who is a Lebanese Christian uh, called Sacred Misinterpretations, which is essentially uh, an evangelical approach to uh, Christian-Muslim dialogue in the context of his own Lebanese context. So those are a few, few ideas to get you started. One of the things you'll find uh, is that the vast majority of Christian engagement with Islam in the last few years has been Catholic. While Protestants have a long tradition earlier in the, the 20th century, especially with missionary activity. More recently, there hasn't been as much Protestantism. And I think as someone who's also reformed, there's really interesting ways that those of us in the reformed tradition can engage with Islam. We share a lot of similar commitments to the sovereignty of God, to the priority of scripture, to the claim that God's will for 
the world is not just for us, but for the transformation of society, a call to renew and reform ourselves. But there's also really fundamental disagreement. So I'd really love to see more uh, reformed pastors, reformed theologians engage with Islamic thought, because I think there's a lot of fruit there. Um, ironically, in the 16th century, there was a lot of Catholics and Anglicans who critiqued Calvin and Calvinism as being covert Islam. Uh, there's an entire book called the Islamo-Calvinism, which was essentially that Calvinists were, were really too influenced by Islam. So I'd love to see more reformed Christians think seriously uh, about both the, the similarities, but importantly, the differences between us and Sunni Islam specifically. So do they have in mind particularly the similarities or formal similarities between Calvinism and Asherite theology, voluntarism and so on? Yeah, I mean, you can read my essay in the Muslim world from 2017 about it. But yeah, I mean, the occasionalism, divine sovereignty, providence, questions about creaturely mediation, right? The fact that you, there's a critique of idolatry. Both want to say that the human heart is an idol-making factory, these sorts of things. Yeah, is that the one on John Calvin and Al-Ghazali? No, this, this is on, uh, it's called Islam as a Christian Trope, and it looks at Calvin, Bollinger, Turretin, Schleiermacher, and Boving, and how they talk okay. about Islam in their work. That's fascinating. We'll put those books in the uh, show notes for the podcast, everybody. So if you didn't hear all of the, the, that list, you can uh, you can pull it up and find links to them there. Thank you so much, Joshua, for this deeply insightful and helpful conversation. Thanks for your work. Um, it's great to have you. Yeah, thanks so much again. It's been really fun. And I, I hope that uh, you all continue in these strange times and the challenge of education and ministry and well, COVID or nearing the end of COVID, hopefully. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll be praying for you all too. I know you got a lot of the same dynamics that we're working with here and hopefully this will all come to an end soon. In the meantime, it's been great having this conversation. Thanks everybody for joining us. And uh, until next time, take care. interested if if gray do you mind you're welcome to go i was gonna ask a quick follow-up on neo-calvinism is that okay yeah okay and then when then we'll go we'll go right back to you tommy i mean you've got to talk about neo-calvinism you got to talk about neo-calvinism he, he brought it up so you know i felt like that was those uh, a good opportunity to ask this question here